Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. Laura just put up her hair because it's very hot. What, it's more than very hot. You have big hair, Laura. That's because it hides all my secrets. We hope everyone is having a good summer. We've had a crazy summer. Yeah, and we've had to step back a little bit. We've both had a lot going on. And I don't know about you, Laura, I have really missed this. I have too. I've really missed this. And what the listeners don't know is that Sarah and I are now not just co-hosts, but we're roommates. That's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Temporarily. Temporarily. <laughs> it's been really fun, it's I been, have to say. Yeah, it's been a giant summer slumber party. It's been a blast. I went to Ireland and England for a couple of weeks and it, oh my God. God, I love it. And I just wanted to give a huge shout out to my dear Irish friends. Just the best. They're like my family. And you know, Laura, I got to be honest. Sometimes I dream of moving back to Ireland, buying some sheep, and pitching my iPhone into the Irish Sea. Sarah, please, you'd be like connected and digging up the closest cold case in about a week. Oh, no. In fact, I found a case there. There's actually an ongoing case of a law professor at Trinity College who is facing uh, murder charges, possibly. So you, you were only there for a week and you've got a case. So oh. I, I don't think retirement to, to Ireland is going to be very restful for oh. you if you're hunting down criminals. We're, no, no, no. Well, <laughs> never retire from crime. Are you kidding? Of course not. So this case we're talking about today, Laura, this is from your old neighborhood from New York. So just, Laura, what was the vibe in the Upper East Side in the 90s? This was actually 1990, so late 80s, 90s. Right. It was. And actually, I didn't move there until I think I moved there in 99. But the vibe in 90 was it was dangerous era. New York City was really dangerous at that time. But New York City is always going to be New York City and to people like me, the center of the universe. So the Upper East Side, it was a very residential area and this was a great expensive neighborhood. Yeah, this was Upper East Side and even though the rest of New York, I think, was really violent and parts of it were downright dangerous, like muggings were just, they happened on a regular Off basis. The, uh, the subway was dangerous, Central Park was dangerous, but... You didn't commonly see people being killed on the streets of the Upper East Side. This was not a common occurrence. Yeah, so this was October 23rd, 1990. It was a crisp fall morning, and George Kogan was walking back to his Upper East Side apartment. So he had just picked up groceries, and he was going home for a romantic breakfast with his live-in girlfriend. 
you can just picture him whistling, excited to start a new day with his new love. From behind him, a man approached, and as Kogan approached his building, the man fired three bullets into Kogan's back. And it would take almost 20 years to unravel and bring Kogan's murderer to justice. So Sarah, who was Kogan? So Kogan was part of a kind of a home furnishing real estate empire, essentially. He was born September 25th of 1941. He was born in Minsk, Belarus, and their family name was Kaganovich, and they fled ahead of the Nazis. They fled to Cuba and then on to New York City. So at Ellis Island, their name became Americanized to Kogan. This happened typically at, at Ellis Island. I mean, if you had like an elaborate like Polish name or Gaelic name, or they just would just like give you a right. name essentially. So Americanize it. They would Americanize it. So his name became Kogan. So they moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico. And Solomon Kogan now, he bought a farm port city and essentially made like the Fifth Avenue of Puerto Rico. This was like the really tony area to move to. He also set up what was called New York Department Stores de Puerto Rico of New York and Puerto Rico. I have so much admiration for people who immigrate to this country with nothing, with not much, and then just set up these incredible businesses, I gotta say. Well, I mean, that's absolutely the American way and how this country was built, and it's totally inspirational, and this is another example of a family, really a whole family who did that and reaped success. That's right. And they built nine department stores. They expanded into real estate. They really developed. They became like Puerto Rican royalty, essentially. Absolutely. And Sarah, I have to add that I love Puerto Rico. Oh, I love Puerto Rico. Love Puerto Rico. Me too. Uh, And actually, my good friend Sal lives in Puerto Rico. So shout out to Sal. He's he's my class at Harvard. So anywhere where I can gamble and go to the beach is a good time for me. But it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And they were really at the top of the food chain there. Absolutely. The Kogan family. Like you said, they were Puerto Rican royalty. Absolutely. And George Kogan ended up attending private schools. And he just had a real head for business. He ended up going to NYU. He was not kind of a college guy. I'm not sure, but I think he even dropped out of NYU. He just wanted to get into the business. Business, and he had a real head for business. While he was in New York, he met Barbara Siegel. So she was an art history major at Barnard, and she was a middle-class girl from Morrison, New Jersey. I think, you know, she had a very typical middle-class Jewish upbringing, camps and teen tours, and... Yep, she attended Temple. Temple, two-parent, you know, Hebrew school. I mean, this was a very typical Jewish upbringing she had. But she was accomplished in her own right, and she ended up going to Barnard College. So Barnard is affiliated with Columbia. Can you tell us a little bit about that affiliation? Yeah, absolutely. And this gets confusing, I mean, even to me. So Barnard actually was founded in 1889 when activist Annie Nathan Mayer and a group of women petitioned the trustees at Columbia to open an affiliated women's school because at this time, men's college, these were basically men's colleges, women were not accepted. Right. 
they petitioned to have this new school named after the recently deceased 10th president of Columbia, whose name was Frederick A.P. Barnard. So that's actually how Barnard began. Now, obviously, years later, Columbia did begin to accept women, but Barnard still remained as part of Columbia, but as a women's school. So at Barnard, Barbara was involved in theater productions, and she just had knockout looks, knockout confidence, some talented enough to actually get a record signing with Capitol Records. And so George saw Barbara in one of these productions and just really was... He was taken with her. He was totally taken with her. Sarah, this just reminds me, we just, I feel like we've heard this story so many times with the Woodward, with, you know, it's like this rich man goes to New York and and falls for some, you know, a showgirl or an actress. And, you know, we kind of see this here. I'm not, you know, she was much more than that. But, you know, he sits in and then he kind of winds and dines her. And little does she know that he is part of a $40 million family. That's exactly right. But I think she really fell in love. Oh, I do too. And I mean, I'm sure it didn't hurt that he was whining and dining and who wouldn't be completely blown away by all of that attention and admiration. Barbara comes from kind of a good family, a solid family from New Jersey, but it's a kind of a middle-class existence. I'm sure it was not fancy cars and trips and dinners. And and so George really wowed her. And showed her an entire new world. An entire new lifestyle. Exactly, which she was charmed by. So after Barbara graduated from Barnard, she and George eloped in 1964. So together, Barbara also had a really solid head for business. So together they built a family and a business in Puerto Rico. And just the descriptions, Laura, they lived in paradise in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico's paradise to me anyway, but I mean, you know, knowing that they were living, you know, in the best buildings and the best apartments. They lived near old San Juan, which is gorgeous. gorgeous. They lived in total luxury in an oceanfront penthouse with white sand beaches and a pool and views of the Atlantic Ocean. So I read that the Kogans had trouble conceiving and I believe that's right so they in 1966 they adopted a son his name was Scott like so many couples I know this happens all the time (laughs) once you adopt you kind of like chill and relax they had their second son it was like basically like Irish twins so very soon after they had their second son William and they're part of a larger Kogan family They were part of the family business, but then they were very entrepreneurial and they went off and Sarah, it amazed me how many businesses they were involved in. I know. Boards and trusts. I mean, it was just crazy how they had the time for all this. Well, I'm sure they had nannies and everything like that, but you're right. So many times you see the scions of rich families and they don't do anything with their fortunes. They just loll on the beach and whine and have champagne problems kind of thing. We've actually seen that a lot in Ivy League murderers cases, but not in this case. George was motivated and so was Barbara. She was an equal partner in all of these business ventures. Absolutely. They were doers. They were like they had a jewelry store, clothing stores, high-end hotels, antique stores, casinos, real estate publications. They were like the toast of like Puerto Rican culture. Two gorgeous children. Yeah, they basically had it all. But after years in Puerto Rico, Barbara wanted a change. 
I think she may have also wanted to liven up the marriage, which I think Sarah may have become more of a business partnership. I think so. In many ways, I think the kids go off to schools. They kind of have an empty nest. And I think Barbara is a little bit like the fisherman's wife. You know that old tale of like, I have everything, but I want more. But I want more. And so I think Puerto Rico, she was kind of a big fish in the Puerto Rican social scene. And I think she was like, okay, what's next? It's New York. If you if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Yeah, but right? we're talking top of the food chain when you're going to New York. And that's a totally different stratosphere. But she was ready for that challenge and she wanted to move to New York. And George had a sister in, I believe, New Jersey. And, and he was for it, for that change. So this is 1980. And the Kogans, you know, they sold off some property and businesses and they moved to the Upper East Side. Also, we should mention that Solomon, the the patriarch, passed away. And so obviously there's quite a fortune at stake. Large family, yes. But I think in a way Barbara got addicted to the attention of high society, both in Puerto Rico. She already had it in Puerto Rico. And like we said, New York is a different scene, as we know. And things did change when they moved to New York City. The Kogans at this point had, and I've said this before, I'm sorry to to reiterate this, but I love this phrase. The French have a phrase called mariage blanche. It's literally a white marriage. It's very transactional. They were roommates, but the romance had all but gone. But they had all the fixings of a glamorous couple, nice suits. They had this Tony apartment. They opened up a new business. I guess what we would say today, they had the perfect Facebook life. They did have the perfect Facebook life. And by June of 1988, they were kind of anxious to open a new business and they bought some commercial space on Madison Avenue. Anyone who doesn't know, that's the best shopping in New York, Madison Avenue. This is where all the the best stores are on Madison and Fifth. And they bought right there. This could not have been inexpensive. And they decided to open a high-end antique store. Now, this is a very difficult and competitive market in New York City. And this also requires having large inventory of expensive items. But they decided to go for it and they opened this business. Called Kogan and Company. But the problem was, like we said, New York was a totally different scene and the the business was struggling. For the first time, their Midas touch was not working there. Plus, they had a robbery at the business. So they just didn't have it. They didn't have the traffic. Barbara's management style rubbed people the wrong way. She wanted her employees to use like a downstairs bathroom and later wound up getting sued for this. I mean, this was just not going well. It was not smooth sailing as they had been used to. They had had success after success for so many years together. So they decided to bring on a PR consultant to get some attention for the business and see if they could make this work. So they hired a high-end public relations firm and through that they found Mary Louise Hawkins. Now, Mary Louise was very accomplished in her own right. She'd gone to Brown University. She had studied ballet. She went to fancy boarding schools. She was kind of a socialite in her own right. Perfect New York resume. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, from a wealthy family, kind of the country club set, I would say they were. Absolutely. And initially, Barbara loved Mary Louise and even tried to set her up with her son. The son and Mary Louise didn't have chemistry, but George and Mary Louise started spending more time together. Yeah, and like maybe we could talk about Mary Louise a little because I think he was tremendously older than her. 
Yeah, so, about 20 years, I think. About 20 years. And Barbara didn't see her initially as a threat. She wanted to set up Mary Louise with her son. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Sarah has a theory about this that she calls hot nanny theory. It's the hot nanny syndrome. Oh, okay. hot nanny syndrome. Sorry. Don't, I'm sorry. Don't hire... It's not in the DSMR yet, so we can't really... Yeah, listen. Like, don't hire Giselle Bunchen to mind your kids. Sorry, but don't okay all right you know well she was not that i'm gonna push back on this one a little because she wasn't the nanny and initially barbara was really the one dealing with her yeah and so as george and mary louise start spending more time together they start falling for each other yes they start having breakfasts together and i think what she finds in him is he's this great listener she's very interested in him and finds him very fascinating, and they form this real bond. And before you know it, it turns romantic. That's right. And so George, upon starting the affair, I think he moves out two weeks. And I think they go on a trip, and they kind of consummate it, he and Mary Louise. And then after that, he moves into Mary Louise's apartment. Well, what he does is he comes home, and he tells Barbara, I'm in love with another woman. And... I'm leaving you for this woman, and I can't even imagine what the shock to her world that must have been. She's been in this marriage for decades. She thinks everything's fine. They've been going along for so long. She has no idea that anything's going on with George and this extremely younger woman, and she's shocked shocked you can kind of feel her pain at this point in the story yeah the shock, I, f- yeah. I do I do feel her pain I think it was just to be left for a woman half your age she was his business partner and now all of this is in jeopardy that's exactly right and what ensues is a very contentious divorce proceeding essentially I think Barbara goes through about five five, five different lawyers she is kind of punishing George through the divorce proceedings. And I mean, know. if anyone's ever been in divorce court, I have. It's really the worst place you want to ever wind up. And it's really not about money or these small petty issues. It really becomes an extension of the fights in the marriage often. And she was very hurt. Which I can understand. And I think that she wanted more and more. And she resented the fact that he's off in St. Bart's with the 25-year-old woman. Exactly. And she also... I think she resented... Well, I think there's obviously... It's just natural to be resentful at that point. But also, it's sort of a double betrayal. Mary Louise was somebody that she like liked enough to want to set up with one of her sons no she hired her i mean this is if i hire somebody to work on my business who then takes my husband i mean this is what she's thinking we know things are much more complex than that i'm sure the marriage had run its course before that i think george was feeling passion excitement alive for the first time in many many years exactly Cut to the morning of October 23rd, 1990. And as we had mentioned in the beginning, George is walking back. He and Mary Louise had this ritual of kind of like having breakfast. He goes to the grocery store. This is from her apartment, picks up a couple of bags of groceries. He probably picks up like bagels, orange juice, cereal, whatever. This is a tradition that they have. They have breakfast together. And so he's walking back to her apartment, which I believe was on 69th Street. And out of nowhere, a gunman comes and shoots him three times in the back, Laura. And the bizarre thing about this is that the doorman 
who is also Puerto Rican, he has a relationship with this guy. The sounds of the shots are covered up because the Trump Tower is being built like very close by. So they're used to hearing like hammering and staple guns. So the noise is kind of covered up by this noise. So the doorman, one of the housekeepers comes to the door and knocks on the door frantically. And the doorman goes out and he sees George Kogan on the ground. He's face down and he can see that there are, are bullet holes in his back. And he called the police immediately. The police come. They rush George off to the hospital, obviously. And the police asked the doorman, did George say anything to you? And he's like, no. And they start to develop the scene. They do. And I mean, this isn't just, you know, another violent drive-by or shooting in New York. This is an assassination. Three bullets in the back from behind. They know that George was targeted. So they know that they need to look for a suspect who wanted George dead. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the things they find at the scene is a 44 hollow point bullet. They know that the bullet comes from a 44. Like, think like Clint Eastwood. We're talking like, that's a gun, according to one law enforcement officer, that can bring down a grizzly bear. Amazing. So whoever shot George Kogan wanted him dead for sure. And while George is going into surgery and teetering on life or death, Barbara, his next of kin, who she remains to be, the divorce isn't final, is nowhere to be found, Sarah. This is crazy to me is the father of her children despite what's going on but mary louise hawkins is at the hospital she's absolutely hysterical this is her love has just been gunned down the police try to talk to her they're trying to develop witnesses they're trying to figure out what happened with the scene and so one of the first things they develop is a ex-boyfriend of mary louise's he was a psychiatrist much they, older psychiatrist daddy yeah. issues yeah and they try to develop him as a suspect but it turns out he has a new girlfriend he has an alibi he quickly gets crossed off the list and they look at mary louise immediately think about it if you're a cop and you look at this situation you have this man who you know is is worth money and he has this girlfriend 20 years younger than him i'd be suspicious i'd be suspicious too but as it turns out George and Mary Louise was actually living in an apartment that her father owned. She had money of her own, and she was in her relationship with George for love, not for money. There was no motive for her to kill George, although we later find out that he was in the process of making her the beneficiary on his life insurance policy, which bothers me, Sarah. Yeah, why does it bother you? It bothers me because this is a new woman in his life, and he has two children. And I, I feel like the children should be the beneficiaries and not this relatively new woman in the scheme of his life. I agree. Yeah, I really disapprove when yeah, people do that. I That's do true. too. And I and it actually happens more than frequently. <laughs> I've seen it happen several times. So let's go back to the scene of the crime. So what the police know is that there's a very vague description of the shooter. He has this weird like neon green hat, a plaid shirt. The witness who sees him, she's a woman who's stepping out of her car. She can't really identify him. She gives the police kind of a rough description of this guy. So the police start in on a background of George Kogan. They do a victimology, Sarah. They do a victimology. That's exactly right. And they do find some things that are kind of interesting about George. One of the main things they find is that he was owed a lot of money. 
he'd sold a guy named Abram Torres the hotel in Puerto Rico. And this Torres owed George like $9 million. So they start zeroing in on Torres because Torres, look, they think he might have Russian mob connections. There's some sketchy business things. And George is not as wealthy on paper as he, that his lifestyle represents, yeah, this essentially. Su- this surprised me. Yeah. This surprised me where that money had gone, although I think we've seen it here and in many cases. No matter how much money you have, you can be making $100,000 a month and spending two. And they lived a very expensive lifestyle. So it's quite possible that they were really going through a lot of the money they were making as they were making it. And that he did not have the high net. No, he did have a high net worth, but not the high net worth we expected. It's clear that the Kogans were living beyond their means, but the police start to really dig down on Taurus and they see that he had a payment plan with George for whatever reason they kind of back burner Taurus as a suspect and Sarah meanwhile back in New York my favorite newspaper the New York Post and others <laughs> like it cannot cannot yeah. I know she, yeah Laura gets all of her reliable news from the New York Post I've gotten in trouble, actually, for posting New York Post stuff on the (laughs) Ivy League Murders Facebook page. Listen, in trouble from me. And from Sarah. Yeah, from Sarah. So I love the Post. I love sensationalization. But you just know this story was made for the Post. Love triangle, millionaire slain, younger woman, whodunit, Puerto Rican millionaire. This just captured and fascinated the public in the way we see it all the time. I mean, this is pre-internet, but you can only imagine the headlines daily in New York were just going crazy for this story. They, and people could, not, were, they could not get enough of this. I Look, it's, we're still talking about it. It's a pretty fascinating story. But the reality is that George, who had been struggling for his life, finally succumbs to his injuries. And now when I say succumb to his injuries, that's such a euphemism. These are hollow point bullets. Okay, these went into George's body. And the whole point of hollow point bullets is that they expand in the body. Your insides just get eviscerated. So he shot three times in the back. I believe, and I think someone else mentioned this too, a typical hitman method two in the gut one in the head i think what happened is the guy shot him twice in the back and was aiming for his head and and as george is going down he he just hits him higher in the in the and then walks away he doesn't get the head essentially so george was struggling in the hospital and he finally succumbs to his injuries the doctors do everything they can to save him So George's funeral was very well attended. This was a very famous temple in New York and lots of people attended. And basically what happened is Mary Louise Hawkins did not go because she was told by her attorney, look, the press is going to be all over you. It's going to be awkward with Barbara. But Barbara Barbara shows up to the funeral and it, it's almost sort of theatrical, her demonstrations of grief about her husband. The two sons have to hold her up type of thing. She's screaming, wailing. But the police went to the funeral and they're like, okay, is this real or is she just play acting? So Barbara, after George's death, she receives over 
$4 million in life insurance. And that she winds up getting, Sarah, and that would be worth $9 million today. Oh, just interesting. So that, and that okay. was, she wound up getting that in two payments because the insurance company, of course, this is a murder. They're going to do an investigation, but they can't find anything. So it was Barbara's bizarre behavior about the money that really led police to start to zero in on Barbara. So she receives the life insurance in two payments, like you said. I call it the Menendez effect because she goes out and spends and spends and spends. She just fritters away this money on plastic surgery, on expensive vacations, on serious retail therapy. Apartment and- renovations. It was like she'd buy an apartment renovate. It was bizarre and it was so over the top that it seems to be almost like she just had this compulsion to spend and spend and spend and and it also she ends up in bankruptcy court yeah trying to claim crazy she lied the judge wouldn't grant the bankruptcy and so the police start to zero in on barbara and they pull up her phone records and they see that she called the insurance company five days before george's death People amazed me, Sarah. I mean, how many times have we seen this type of thing? So many times. People are just so blatant. That, yeah, exactly. And that it was just her bizarre behavior. She's suicidal. Her family has to step in. It's just, she totally is just exhibiting like erratic behavior. Then in 1992, a guy named Carlos Piavanetti gets arrested for passing a bad check in Westchester County, that's like about an hour outside of New York City. And he tells police that he's got information on the Kogan case. So basically he's caught up, Carlos is caught up in this kind of fraud scheme against Westchester County and he's facing about 15 years. So he tells the police that an associate of his by the name of Manny Martinez confessed to him that he set up the hit on George for Barbara Kogan. So who was Martinez? Martinez was Barbara's lawyer in Puerto Rico, and he translated Spanish documents in the divorce, essentially. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's safe to say she was, Martinez was Barbara's last attorney, so kind of the low end of the spectrum. Or one of her. One of her. I mean, she found him, I believe, in the yellow pages. This is when she was really out of options for attorneys, and it turns out he's very shady. Pia Vanetti called Martinez, where he admits, Martinez admits to setting up a hit, but not specifically against Kogan. So the police then zero in on Martinez. So they look into Martinez's background. He had told other people about Kogan. And what the problem is that when they go to pick up Martinez, he's actually in Mexico City and he's facing charges of embezzling millions of dollars. And the Mexican authorities refused to hand over Martinez until he served his time in Mexican prison. And he's slated to spend about 20 years in Mexican prison. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant to say. <laughs> So the New York City police are frustrated. They don't have enough to pin the murder on Barbara without Martinez. Until March 23rd, 2007, when they get a call from Mexican authorities that Martinez has been released. So they put Martinez on trial and he's found guilty, which paves the way for indicting Barbara Kogan. So this is 17 years after the murder of George. Yeah, Sarah, this has been a long time coming for the family, for the poor sons who have watched their father die, their mother be under a cloud of suspicion, and finally be charged. 
Yeah, so in November of 2008, Barbara Cogan took a plea. And what was her motive? Her motive was that George had taken up with Mary Louise and he was really worth more dead to Barbara than alive. I want to talk about this for a second because, like we said, George Cogan had actually a lot less money on paper than what his lifestyle would purport, which is surprising to me. He had had family fortune. He had these businesses. He had hotels and real estate. And where did all the money go? Because on paper, George only had about $2 million. It's amazing, Sarah. But I think as we look through Barbara's erratic spending and imagine that that didn't just occur after George's death, that that probably had been going on for decades. And I can just assume that the money was wasted away through all those years, expensive stores and on expensive vacations and apartments. We know that you can't relate to that at all, Laura. Yeah, I just don't have Barbara Cogan's budget for my expensive taste. We have beer budgets with champagne taste. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that's why I'm living with Sarah, so I can afford my wardrobe. (laughs) But we have the best shoes. Really? We do have the best shoes. You know, so Barbara Cogan, she dressed all in black for court, and she was dubbed by the press as being the Black Widow. And really, she only served 12 years in jail, and she's a free woman now. So this This is crazy, and really brings to mind comparisons to the Betty Broderick case where I'm sure listeners are familiar, where Betty Broderick murdered her husband Dan after Dan left... Betty for a younger woman, another contentious divorce, a lot of similarities. And it just struck me that had Barbara been presented more sympathetically in the press or by her attorney, we might feel for her a little uh, having what she had gone through. But that wasn't the case. And Barbara was really a very hard character to have any sympathy for. I agree. And I think a lot of people are sympathetic to Betty Broderick because Dan Broderick was an attorney. He was maneuvering to kind of just take all the assets, that kind of thing. And I I think that Barbara Cogan just seems, I think Betty murdered her husband and his lover out of rage, out of emotion. And it almost seems to me that Barbara Cogan murdered George Cogan out of greed essentially he was worth more dead than he was alive I think it's also mental illness I think Betty didn't have she was mentally ill and she just didn't have the the skills to put it together and Barbara was was able to put together a plan and hire somebody so it shows what people are capable of Sarah and we will cover the Betty Broderick case we actually had a uh, our researcher Nate I think, doesn't he have some letters of hers? And he does, yeah. He he actually does a great Facebook group about the Betty Broderick case, which Nate is the moderator for. So he's very involved in that case. And Dan Broderick went to Harvard. So we will get to that case, but this has been a fascinating one. Very interesting to cover, tragic story, but we're very happy that we could bring it to you. And we are so excited to be back. Another season of Ivy League Murders, lots of exciting cases and mysteries and all kind of special bonus episodes. We are, and we're coming up on our 100th episode of Ivy League Murders. And thank you for your patience with us. We really did just have to step back a little bit, but we've got a very exciting series coming up for you guys that we're working on right now and it's really about my favorite subject badass 
private investigators, badass female lawyers, and I think you guys will really, really enjoy this series. So until then, until then, murder, murder, murder.